Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. If you don't know me, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're just so glad that you're joining us here as part of our service, either like in our building here or online. We just are so honored that you would uh, spend a few moments with us looking at God's Word and worshiping together. You know, um, America has a long and uncomfortable relationship with our leaders and authority, and probably for good reasons. You know, historians point to around 1968 as the beginning of our leadership dystopia, when uh, President Johnson at the time lied to the American people about the cost of the Vietnam War in regard to American lives and treasure. And in the decades that have followed, uh, the economic crises and political scandals that have happened in this nation have made us more and more cynical about our leaders. In fact, in 1964, about 78% of Americans believed that government could be trusted to do the right thing. And yet today, that's dropped to less than 25%. Now, you don't need the high-powered search engine of Google to search out examples of corruption and scandal that we've seen just in my lifetime alone, which, albeit, might be very much longer than some of you here today. Your memory, though, will work just fine if I say the name Nixon or I mention Iran-Contra, or the Clinton scandals, you find it's very easy to remember leaders that have failed us. And actually, literally, literally, every presidency has been marred by scandals and cover-ups and ensuing uh, commutations and pardons that sometimes just leave you scratching your head. If you really want to get depressed about this, and I know you do, um, check out, just Google, list of federal political scandals in the United States, and you'll be amazed as you scroll through it. Beyond our political leadership failures, we have the rich and powerful, right? Weinstein, Cosby, Epstein, I mean, it can just go on and on, right? In fact, uh, this quote by Lord Acton, a 19th century British politician, maybe you've heard it, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Seems It's true, isn't it? And the Bible itself acknowledges that, uh, that there is a corrupting influence of unrestrained power and authority. There's a period in the Old Testament, it's called the period of the kings, and it's after the 
the unified monarchy, the nation of Israel, and they have like this kind of like round-robin uh, version of kings. And um, the quote that, re that is repeated so often there is, this, the kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, the stats of that time, this period of the kings in Israel's history, says it all. The Bible mentions five good kings and 33 evil. But let's be fair, right, Christians? The church hasn't exactly been a wonder of virtue either. We can take issue with the, all the Catholic church's sex scandals and, of course, cover-ups. And then it's very easy to just think about all the high-profile Protestant Christian leaders and pastors who've imploded. Bakers, Haggard, Driscoll, Hybels, Falwell Jr., Zechariah, Ortberg, Lentz. It becomes virtually impossible to tell if some of our most revered leaders are truly who they say they are. Now, the alarming effect of this is that it's, it's obviously it's affecting the unchurched. Um, who hasn't had a conversation with somebody about what God has done in your life and it's rebutted quickly by some of these leadership failures in the church over just recent decades? But, you know, that's not the end of the story. It's this, these leadership failures have had a debilitating effect on Christians, the faithful Christians as well. And it seems like today we're, we've kind of given up and we're waving the white flag of cynicism when we think about leaders, Christian or not. And I can't tell you how often I've heard Christians say, well, no one can actually be trusted. There is no leader that's actually virtuous. And I've heard Christians say, well, I just have given up entirely. I don't believe in anyone. And then others, it's so easy for us to fall into what we've talked about in the past, moral relativism, where we're just applying the, the scrutiny of virtue to those that have opposing views. And on one hand, you have Christian leaders who refuse to take responsibility for their actions, ironically refusing to take on the very things that they have imposed on others, in their history of Christian leadership. And on the other hand, you have boards and committees who have oversight that don't hold leaders accountable in the moment that they need to be held accountable. And so it's no wonder that this, that it's eroded our perspective. And so character has become secondary to success or personality or celebrity or charisma. And then, of course, we have churches who refuse to offer redemption to the honest, virtuous leader who actually bends their knee to reconciliation or rehabilitation and, and wants to restore that trust. And the truth is, we can neither afford to give a free pass to a leader nor deny redemption to the fallen. This mix of power and authority with God is actually one of the most dangerous and the most volatile. It's, it's like an explosive, and so it has to be handled with the utmost care, which is why this part that Tanya 
read this morning about Christian leadership is so relevant and so important to our day and time. If you haven't been with us as we've gone through this letter that the Apostle, Paul, Apostle Peter wrote to Christians living in Asia Minor, we've been calling it countercultural with the idea that Christians in that day and time were living in a culture that they did not fit in. Peter references them. He calls them exiles and foreigners and strangers. And we can bring that forward, bridge that context to our day and time where, you know, it feels sometimes like we're just totally out of step with what's happening in the world today. And stressful circumstances or you know, like being, feeling like we're embattled uh, raises our anxiety and it causes confusion. And that's when, it's in that moment that we need clear and godly and Christ-centered leadership. We need to be able to have confidence in our leaders. Leaders who are imperfect yet trustworthy. And those who lead in the way of Jesus, according to Peter, as we'll see, are worthy of people following. And we, followers, in the, in the, in the, in the positions where we are followers, the countercultural thing that we're called to do is to follow that godly leadership. And so here in chapter 5, Peter's been talking up to this point kind of like generally to the church, and here he turns his attention specifically to the leaders of that day, the leaders of the church in the first century and still in many churches today. They're called elders. And in verse 1, he says, To the elders, this is who he's addressing, among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. So Peter one, he identifies with these leaders. He says, I am one of you, which is not just him. He's standing side by side with them, but he's also identifying the fact that he too is this person. He is a leader. And so he knows what he's talking about. Certainly he does because he mentions suffering and leading the church. That was a little bit of a joke. Some of you got that. <laughs> and, and Peter says that those who lead with integrity as witnesses of Christ in their leadership are going to be rewarded. And yet he can identify with the challenges of that leadership. So the concept of elder might be like a new word to you. And so I just want to like hit some basic things about eldership or elders in the Bible. And this is in your notes. So like you can just follow along here. I'm going to go pretty quickly through this part. Elder leadership emerged from Israel's model of spiritual leadership. That's where it came from. They had people that led their communities that were considered wise and of good character. And because they had lived long, they had experience. So then elder doesn't necessarily equate with old, but it is synonymous with wisdom and character. And in the first century, you see elders lead the church. They are the structure. They're the human authority 
as, as Paul and other apostles established churches throughout Palestine. So in, in, in your New Testament, I'm just stop here just for a second, you don't see a democracy kind of leadership in a church. You see these godly people leading their congregations, their overseers. We're going to learn today about the nature of their leadership. Elders are capable of communicating scripture. Elders assure that doctrine remains sound. Elders visit and pray for the sick. And you can look up all these verses later. Uh, I think that they're in your note sheet. And elder leadership in the first century is always plural. You never see an instance where, you know, there's an individual, they say, and submit yourself to the elder. It's always a plurality of leadership. And so this is the model that uh, many, new te- many churches uh, in, in our modern day have, like, adopted. It looks different than the first century. We'll talk about that. Elder qualifications are found in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and Titus 1. So you can read those. And every time we nominate elders, we present those scriptures to you to evaluate us by. Now, it's important to note that there's no direct comparison, like one-to-one comparison of these leadership roles like an elder. Like an elder in the first century looks very different than today, and that's true of, all, of every position you see in the New Testament. It's not, it's not a one-to-one relationship, whether you say pastor, or elder, or deacon, or deaconess. Um, in the New Testament, or in the first century, it was very likely elders were pastors. And often you see that term being used interchangeably in the New Testament letters. So we can't perfectly replicate these roles. Um, when, you know, we, we like to talk about our biblical models and everything, and, and of course at Sunridge we're trying to be as biblical as we can, but honestly, the, the context is just so different, it's going to look different. But the, but the, the nature and the character of leadership remains the same. But the scripture gives us a lot of latitude in how, how it comes forward into to our context today. So elders at Sunridge are in charge of three things. Direction, doctrine, and discipline. They do that through something we call policy governance, which is a way of uh, directing and guiding an organization and oversight of me, the lead pastor. And I, as a lead pastor, am ultimately responsible for all the operations that happen here. I have a wonderful team. That I'm not saying that I do everything. I have an amazing staff. But I'm held ultimately responsible for that by the board of elders. But I've been given a clear field to run. I have boundaries. But like anywhere in those boundaries, I can run and direct the organization or staff. You know, you've heard the phrase before, everything rises and falls on leadership. That's true. And that's why when the Bible talks about leadership, character, character is at the top of the list. Because God has designed people to be, to be led, but be led in a way that has integrity. And for the Christian to be led in a way that reflects the Jesus ethic. So today, as we look at this passage, just verses 1 through 5, we're going to pull out the role of a church leader. We're going to look at the role and the response of the membership. 
and we're going to capture the big idea, the way that we're all, whether leader or follower, whatever place you find yourself in that moment in an organization, uh, the way we're to relate to one another. It's like the big, big idea, okay? Are you up for that? Okay. So number one, an elder, Peter says, is a shepherd. An elder is a shepherd. He says in verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. So this, this image of shepherd so common in, in your Bible, and it's so influential in how leadership or guiding people is referenced. It's an image. It's a vision for how that's to be done. It's one of the most common images you see God or the Bible using to describe um, his relationship with people and any Christian or uh, God, godly leader. For instance, David said of, of God that the Lord is my shepherd, right? And then Jesus said of himself, I am the good shepherd. So that role is of being a shepherd or a leader is uh, basically being God's representative in the world in, in a leadership role, to, to reflect his image in the way that we lead. And shepherding is a lowly job, but so, so important to, in the first century and in metaphorically in the way that we lead um, as Christians in the church today. Shepherds cared for the sheep. So this, is, this shouldn't be like, um, like shocking to you, but here's just some basic things to kind of wrap your, around, your brain around when you think about the image of a shepherd and a leader. Shepherds assured that the sheep had food and water, right? They either took them to a place where they could feed themselves or they assured that they, they brought it right to them. Sometimes they, they were veterinarians and they cared for injuries that the sheep had. Sometimes they're in a role of guardians. They protected the sheep from predators, even risked their lives in doing so. And oftentimes, they had to protect the sheep from other sheep. Um, and, but the main thing a shepherd did was to care for the sheep overall, that their, that their welfare was their utmost concern, even if the sheep in that day didn't appreciate it. Now, Peter continues here, and he draws out motive. For shepherding, which is all part of character as well. He says, not, don't do this because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So I made a little chart I'm going to put up on the screen so that you can see not and then instead. This is what Peter says. Lead as a shepherd, not because you must, not because you have to or you're stuck in the role, but because you're willing, willing to lead. Not greedy for dishonest gain, and, but eager to serve. Not lording it over them. doesn't mean that you don't have authority, but to like heavily lay, abuse that authority, but being an example. And you get the differences here, right? So that breakdown of motive, just like three little things, kind of brings a, a clearer picture to us of what it means to lead as a shepherd. And we learn something about the character of leadership here and how vital that is. It doesn't mean a leader is perfect, 
but it draws out these motives that are super, super important for anyone leading as a Christian. And I just want to stop and say that I think it's really important for the Christian community, for the church, to open our eyes about this and maybe do some honest reflection about what we're attracted to today in terms of leaders. Christians can easily find ourselves attracted to celebrity or someone who's extraordinarily talented or gifted, someone who has charisma, someone with whom we have agreement with, even. But these are all worldly measures of leadership. The biblical concept of leadership is so countercultural to the world. In fact, this is one of the places where, this is one of the examples where Jesus explicitly lays down, this is how it is in the world, and this is how it should be in the church. Sometimes we just adopt that, we kind of pick it up, but Jesus explicitly brings it out in Matthew 20, verse 25, when he called his disciples together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. You see that? Boom. It's totally different. It's countercultural. And then Peter goes on and says that if a Christian leader leads this way, there's a reward. Verse 4, the chief shepherd, when the chief shepherd appears, those who lead to say, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You know, that promise in the crisis time that the first century church is living in in Asia Minor had to be so precious to those leaders because they felt all, all the responsibility and all the pressure of leading a community of faith in a, in a context culturally that was becoming increasingly hostile to those people. And so the weight of the world is on them. The, you know, like, how are we going to stand for truth? And yet, how, how, can we, how can I make sure that our sheep are not abused? Or, you know, how can I protect them? And so that weight is on these leaders. And Peter tells them, when you do that, God is going to reward that. Because I assure you, they were taking heat from without and from within. So after that, Peter, after addressing leaders, then Peter turns his attention to the role and responsibility of the membership. And in verse 5, he says, in the same way, in the same way, just as these leaders are to lead in the spirit of a shepherd, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. So to the membership, Peter says, the church is to submit to its leaders. The church is to submit to its leaders. Before I jump into that and make any comment on it, I just want to like acknowledge the abuse of power. Even in, the, even in some of the names that I listed in the beginning of my message today, um, this verse has been so misused and used to overbear and to control people, that's not the intent here. And somehow, I mean, this is my personal evaluation of it, sometimes it seems like corrupt leaders seem to get people to follow them much better than good leaders. I don't know if you feel that way, and that's 
That's not Bible, but it sure seems like that. That's not what Peter's saying. He's not saying that we bow to everything some Christian leader does because they have this, this title or this role. He's not, he's not uh, in any way condoning the abuse of that authority. In fact, it's totally the opposite. But leaders who are, who are submitted to the Christ model, to this model of being shepherds, that warrants submission by the people who are following in that community of faith. You know, that is just as much scripture as the words to leaders. Sometimes we're leaders and sometimes we're followers. This word submit, it's the same word that's been used throughout uh, Peter's letter where he talked about submitting as citizens to the government. Same word. Submit as slaves to masters. Wives submit to husbands. And all of you submit to one another. And here he's just bringing that word out. One more way of applying this humble submission to one another. We're to submit to godly leadership. Now I know that that's hard for us. It's harder for some of us than for others. But there's a willingness that's implied here. In fact, that's that's kind of echoed uh, by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 17, when he says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you. See that shepherding role come through? As those who must give an account, do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Basically, Peter here, I mean, Peter in his, in his letter, he's saying that, we should follow character, much more so than agreement. Because we'll never agree on everything, will we? Is there anyone here that agrees with everything that I've ever said? She's just doing sign language. She's not raising her hand to agree. <laughs> and often we're, we're just, we look for agreement. I want to be careful how I say that. But you know what? I've never agreed with everything at any church I've been at. In all the years that I've been at Sunridge, there have been times where I did, I did not agree with what we were doing. You know, sometimes I don't even agree with myself, <laughs> which is kind of weird. If the nature of biblical leadership is countercultural, this is countercultural as well, too, right? Because we don't submit. We, we're Americans. When we disagree, we don't submit. Submission scares us. It's anti-American. It's really like not even part of our human nature either. And you don't have to read very far in the Bible to get that. The Bible tells that, tells us that about ourselves. Human beings want our own way. Isn't that the story of Adam and Eve? They wanted their own way. And so they went against what God had guided them to do. And even great leaders in the Bible, like Moses and Paul, are constantly struggling to maintain their leadership. So this is not new to us. But there, there's... There's a couple of ways you can totally ruin 
your pastors or your elders at your church. So if this is your goal, here's how to do it. Number one, revere them at every level and make them like superhuman and just do whatever they say. That is guaranteed to ruin them. And the second way you can ruin them is to dog them on every little issue. (laughs) Biblical leadership and biblical fellowship are both countercultural. But yet human beings are, are designed to be led in a relational context by leaders who care for us. And we thrive most when we do so in response to their godly leadership. You know, I'm assuming that many of you sitting here, Sunridge is your home, your home church. If you have God, if you feel or believe that you have godly leaders here, are you willing to follow them? Even, even when you disagree sometimes. You know, we've had a lot of reasons to disagree over the last year and a half, two years, haven't we? And, you know, I, I've said this before, but my greatest respect goes to the people that have supported, followed in times where you, you would have just decided differently, whether it was about masks, wearing them or not, about whether we should meet inside or not, or whether, you know, outside, whether we should be doing online. You know, we've had lots of opportunities for us all to have different ideas about that, right? And I've just, it's, I can just say, is just one guy with feet of clay that the people that have said, you know, I'm not down with that, but, you know, I'm part of this church. And, you know, I can do it. I really appreciate it. I know you didn't do it for me. If you did, I'll still take it. But, you know, thank you. Thank you. And, and, and all of us, the elders and your staff, are always conscious of the fact that we have to earn that right with you. That we must be not perfect but worthy of that fellowship. And when you give it, that is, that is a precious gift. So thank you. The best thing you could do is, like when you consider leaving a church or finding a church, is to place yourself in a church where the structure is plural, the leadership structure is plural and has accountability and is godly. And then you can trust that leadership to work, to lead your church well. And Peter wraps up this whole matter of leading and submission by wrapping his arms around the whole church as a leader himself. And he says this in verse 5, part B. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So he says, number one, leaders, you have to be a shepherd who cares deeply and is protective of the church. To the church, he says, When you have that leadership structure, follow it. And then to everybody, this is like the big idea, and this has been a consistent idea in Peter's letter, clothe yourself in humility. The church is to be clothed in humility. I'm just going to steal that straight from Peter. little plagiarism. You've heard the saying, clothes make the man. 
The haberdashery of a Jesus follower is humility. Now, I just taught you a big word, haberdashery. You can, go, you can Google that right now. What's the opposite of humility? Pride. Can you think of an example in the Bible or by Jesus um, where pride is extolled as a virtue? Is there, is there like a place where in the New Testament where one of the apostles said, clothe yourselves in pride? Yet, what makes a leader or a follower or a member go south every time in a church? It's pride. It's like, well, I don't have to follow that rule. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm above that. I don't, you know, and then, and pretty soon pride just takes over. I know the statement I'm going to put up on the screen right now isn't proper English, but I wanted to say it anyway, so I'm going to put it up there. Every problem ever in a church can be traced to the absence of humility. And that's true of leaders or people. In fact, pride might be the worst contaminant possible of Christianity. All Christians, all Christianity is flawed, but pride moves the line from being flawed to corrupt to eventually being nothing like the original. So that eventually this Christian organization doesn't, it's not even Christian because it, it's being directed by pride. Did you, do you know that there are things that the FDA considers acceptable levels of in our food? You're aware of that. Uh, mold, insect parts, maggots, rodent hair, and rodent poop. Acceptable levels. In fact, on rodent poop, there's a really like special name for it. It's called mammalian excreta. That's what it'll be. It sounds like something Bach wrote to me. And now, an overture of the mammalian's excreta. But it is not. So, for instance, in spices, uh, the FDA allows three uh, milligrams per pound of rodent poop. Uh, in sesame seeds, five milligrams per pound. So, consider that when you're picking your spices. And then, to add insult to injury, um, with wheat... You can have up to nine pellets per pound. And with cocoa beans, you can have 10 milligrams of mammalian excreta per pound. So think about that the next time you're eating a Dove bar. So let me ask you, how many poop particles are acceptable in your food? How many hairs in your soup are okay? Did you, when was the last time you were eating a bowl of soup and you saw two hairs in there and you said, oh, it's only two hairs and you just kept eating? <laughs> Here's the thing. If you eat enough of that, you can't tell the difference. I know I'm being a little crass right now. Let me be my fireman self. <laughs> 
for a while here. At what point, do you, if you can't distinguish between mammalian excreta and cereal, at what point are you eating cereal with a little bit of that in it? Or are you basically eating that with just a little cereal sprinkled in with it, right? Pride makes Christianity unsafe for consumption. It is the mammalian excreta of Christianity. Pride about our wealth, our education, our views. And of course, we're, you know, much more sly at it. We have Christianized pride today. And we can be proud about our morality or our family and the way our kids turned out. We can be proud about our doctrinal positions or our perspectives on debated issues. And we can be proud about our church. And we can say, well, you know, we do it right. And that's why God is blessing us. And that's why we're growing. The truth is, all of us human beings, we, we struggle with pride. I mean, how can I write a message that addresses pride without being prideful? You think about it. Maybe some of you think I've been a little prideful already. What does humility look like in contrast? The Apostle Paul said it is to place others' needs before our own. Philippians 2. Hmm. That means to exemplify humility, I can listen. I can learn, I will care, and I will serve. If I were to ask you, like when, maybe when you came to Sunridge, you probably had a list of things that you're looking for in a church. Maybe right now you're in a church shopping mode, which is like, I know it's hard to do that. But what do you look for in a church? Some people would say, I'm looking for great worship, or I'm looking for great teaching, or I really need... a an incredible children's program. But by what we learned from Peter today, if I were to ask you, what's the most important thing you could look for in a church, in a place where you could thrive? I would say it's a church that is humble. You know why that is? Because God is present in people who are humble. This is what he says right here at the end of this part on leadership. He says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. If a church exemplifies pride in the way that it approaches scripture or the world or the issues of the day and its views, then think about this. God is opposed to that. You are not going to find the blessing of God in a church that is prideful. You may like that church. You may observe what you believe to be success. It may be comforting to you to be in a church that is prideful in the way that you would like for it to be prideful. 
but the authentic blessing of God will be absent. When we act in pride, we are actually behaving like a godless culture. That's not countercultural. It's actually conforming to the culture. Now you think about all of this, that, it's, that Peter is writing this in the context. He's exhorting leaders and church people, members of churches, that, are, that feel abused by their culture, that they feel under attack, that they feel like they're a cognitive minority, that they've just been pushed to the side. And it's in that context, remember, I keep reminding you that this is, this is what Peter is writing to. And in that context, he's saying, you need godly leadership that you can follow. And you have to wrap yourself in humility. And I would say that if we want to reach a world that, that at times feels hostile to our faith or to the Christian ethic, what we need most is a genuine spirit of humility, not pride. From the highest level of leadership to the just average attender. We should be characterized by humility. I'm going to have the band come up as I just wrap up here. And I know that, like, especially as we began, it would be pretty easy for you to say, well, you know, this is about leaders, and I'm not a leader, so, you know, I can kind of check out until Britt tells a story about mammalian excreta, and then I'll, like, drop back in with them. But this, this, this spirit of humility and the way we respond to one another. This has been the consistent message of Peter writing to a context that, is, that isn't perfectly matched to the day and time in which we're living, but it's very close. And I think it's incumbent upon us to ask ourselves, is this who we are? Because all of us here really are leaders. First of all, we're all leaders. You're, you're a mom, you're a leader. You're a dad, you're a leader. You're a coach, you're a leader. You're a boss, you're a leader. You lead a, you're a volunteer here and you have a, a division, you're a leader. Almost all of us sitting here have some role of leadership. So what Peter says applies to us, that our character matters and what I think this, this culture right now is, is desperate for is leaders who shepherd like the good shepherd and people who follow and people who name the name of Christ to wrap themselves in humility. And if we do that, who knows? Who knows? We might actually affect our culture today. We might actually reach somebody with the gospel, which remember in, two, in chapter 2, verse 12, that's what Peter said the whole thing is about, that we're to live such good lives that people around us will glorify 
God. This is the nature. This is the definition of what that good life looks like. And so I challenge you, Sunridge, if this is your church home, as we leave this campus today, that we go forward as good shepherds. And we go forward with a spirit of humility that we totally wrap ourselves in that spirit as we interact with our world today. And who knows what might happen. With that thought, would you stand and worship together? Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.